before I get into this tonight and start talking, I want to say a couple of things. First is um, a friend of mine, again, named Matt Howell, uh, preached some sermons on this a number of years ago, and I find it to be very helpful. And so I've borrowed again from him on this topic. And, um, yeah, I want to give uh, that disclaimer. Also, um, we're going to be talking about, for the next six weeks or, or seven weeks, um, talking about these things. Um, God's view and design of sex and sexuality, uh, God's view and design of marriage, and then from that, how do we move forward in dating? What does dating look like in light of what the Bible says about uh, marriage and sexuality and all this stuff? And y'all need to know that there's so much that could be said on these topics. Um, and, And there's just no way that I can say it all, and especially not all in one night. And so if you leave tonight... And you're like, man, he, he created more questions than he answered. Where's he going with this? What's he thinking? Um, I'm just going to ask you not to jump to all, all your conclusions that you may be thinking. Um, come back and, and listen to a more full kind of unpacking of this in the next several weeks. Um, because I fully realize that there is hardly a more uh, controversial Topic in an area probably in our country right now. Um, so uh, please be patient with me through this time. Um, certainly, I'm not asking you to don't ask questions. If you have questions about anything, you're always free to, to meet me. My phone number's on the sheet right there. Grab me if you see me walking around. I'd love to talk to you about this stuff, as would Emily or Joey. Um, so, anyway, we want to be a resource for you, we want to be helpful where we can. Let me pray for us, then we'll read this passage together. Father, I pray that you would come and meet with us tonight. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to guide us and to open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. Lord, I pray for those um, who are in here and, and come with just a, a lifetime and years and years and years of, of sexual baggage. I pray that you would meet them and that your good news would go forth to them. And they would see that in Jesus they are uh, wonderfully redeemed. Lord, I pray for those in here who are really struggling with uh, ongoing uh, questions about their sexuality, uh, questions about their uh, gender orientation, all of these things that are difficult and complex. I pray that you would meet them. I pray that they would um, feel that RUF is a place where they can come and ask these questions and certainly don't have to hide them. Uh, and they can be free to wrestle with them. And I pray that uh, as we spend these weeks talking about these issues, that you would um, that you would show who you are and you would show who uh, Jesus is and what you've given us in Scripture. Uh, show us the beauty that is there. And so help me do that toward that end. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me read for us from Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 28, and then 2, 18 through 25. We've gone through these verses a little bit this semester, but we're going to keep kind of coming back to them. So foundational and important. So Genesis 1, 26, 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over all the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then over in chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, so I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, uh, let me get on to 21. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that, God, that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Sin is the reading of God's word. Um, I want to ask you as we begin tonight to think, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, to think of something that when you first heard of doing it, or maybe you first heard of eating it, or thought about trying it, whatever, you thought, there's no way I would ever eat that or try that. That's disgusting, or that's too dangerous, or that's crazy, or whatever that might be. Um, I, I actually had a lot of fun thinking about this over. Um, <laughs> over the last few weeks, because it's fair season, inevitably people come back from the fair and talking about the ridiculous stuff they've eaten. Um, but I actually had so much fun with this that I put it out on Facebook to all my imaginary friends and asked them uh, what they like. Kind of posed this question and said, "What would that be for you?" And the responses were wonderful and hilarious. Um, a favorite one of mine was uh, neti pot. Anybody use a neti pot in here? Uh, it's disgusting. It's like a little saline solution that you squirt up your nose and down this side, just like stringy, nasty goodness. Um, it looks terrible, but then you try it and you're like, yeah, that's actually amazing. Um, <clears throat> sushi was like that for me. I didn't eat anything that lived in the water, and then that all changed. Um, I actually had a, uh, one of Sarah's sisters didn't write this on Facebook but texted me because <laughs> she was too embarrassed to put it on Facebook. And uh, her, like, crazy, fascinating thing that she thought was gross and then she tried it was uh, popping other people's zits. And um, I assured her that that was actually just gross and there was nothing redeeming about that. So I properly shamed her in that place. Um, we could go on and on. The reason that, that I started that and get our minds thinking in all those kinds of ways is that um, when we talk about sex and sexuality over the next few weeks, there are going to be some of you who hear what I'm saying and say, that's crazy. There's no way. That's whatever. That's socially regressive. That's, um, that's you know, fill in the blank, whatever you think it is. I can't control that. I can't control that response. My hope is that through looking at this and slowing down and looking at the Bible's design for sex and sexuality and marriage and all these things, my hope is that you come to the end and at a minimum say, well, that's not as crazy as I thought. But I can see what God is doing in that. I can see why Christians for millennia have held to this view of, of sex and sexuality. You know, you may not end up agreeing with it, and that's okay. Um, you are free to your conscience. But my hope is that you'll see at least why Christians say this. And maybe, though, for some of you, it actually might be good news. It might be redemptive in your life to hear of how God has designed you and how he has made you uh, as a sexual being. 
and how we can live a productive life, whether or not we ever end up married or in a place where we can live out that sexuality and that sexual expression. So tonight we're going to begin this topic by looking at this in three ways. The first thing we're going to do is we're just going to, I'm going to kind of define sex from a biblical perspective. Uh, And then what I'm going to do within that is talk about the cultural kind of dominant cultural narrative right now and why it is that the biblical definition of sex has fallen on such hard times and is such an uproar in our culture. And then after that, I want us to look at how some of us, uh, sex is actually bigger than we think it is. And then lastly, we're going to look at how sex is actually smaller than we think it is. That'll make sense as we get going, I hope. So first, right there, sex is. Here's a definition that I'm going to work from. Sex is the act of giving yourself to another. Now, sex is, it is certainly physical. It's not less than physical. But it is definitely more than physical. Okay, um, and I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit tonight, and in the coming weeks that will become more clear. But let's just talk about the physical thing for a second, just so I can define terms and we can know what we're talking about. I'm going to define the physical act of sex as what you would not do in front of your parents all the way to sexual intercourse. Okay? So I realize that encompasses like everything other than maybe like holding hands or something which you might do in front of your parents and not be that uncomfortable about. So I'm talking about the whole breadth of that. Okay, That's a generalization. I realize that, but but that's what I'm going to go from for the sake of this. Okay. Um, There, uh, Tim Keller defines marriage this way. And again, I'm not quite going into marriage tonight, but but when you start defining sex, you need to define marriage. And so I want to do that also. And I like Keller's definition. He says, uh, marriage is based on a straightforward, marriage, comma, based on a straightforward reading of the Bible, uh, says this. um, It is a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. According to the Bible, God devised marriage to reflect his saving love for us in Christ, to refine our character, to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children, and to accomplish all this by bringing the complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. It needs to be said, he goes on, It needs to be said, therefore, that this Christian vision for marriage is not something that can be realized by two people of the same sex. That is the unanimous view of the biblical authors. And for that reason, it's what I'm going to be meaning when I say marriage uh, tonight and the coming weeks. The proper context for sexual expression, then, according to the Bible, is within that covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Okay? Now... I realize, fully realize, that in standing there tonight and giving that definition, that many of you are thinking, that's not what I believe. That's not what I think. And you may also call yourself a Christian. And um, so the burden is on uh, us at RUF and on this time to delve into this and say, well, both things can't be true. Both things can't be right. We have the same biblical text. So what do we do with that? Um, so we're going uh, to move forward, and I want to tread into this lightly and gently. I hope not to be unnecessarily offensive. Here we go. For a little historical context, um, the Bible's understanding of sex, as I've just defined it, it would not have seemed outrageous even as, even as recent as 50 or 60 years ago. It wouldn't have seemed outrageous at all. It was the dominant view held by both uh, religious people and non-religious people in our country. 
Okay, and so um, the reason why it, it is so shocking to most of our sensibilities in 2015 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and anywhere in this country and, and kind of around the world, but especially in this country, is because we live in what one author has called the I world. We live in the I world, and here's what he means. is that That's a descriptive term of our cultural moment, and the dominating cultural moment, the dominating value of our cultural moment is this. It's expressive individualism. Now, that is a technical term, and I'm going to define it, but write that down if you're taking notes. It's expressive individualism. This is kind of the air that we breathe as a culture at large. Here's what it means. Just to be an individual, that means um, uh, it means that we value freedom. As a cultural, the dominant culture narrative that you hear out there and, and kind of come across social media, all this stuff, is that highly in our culture, we highly value freedom, the freedom to do whatever we want to do without anyone else forcing me into something or without someone else opposing what I want to do or believe in any way. Our culture... Div- uh, our culture loves this definition of freedom that says, I want to do, think, believe, act in any way that I want without anyone challenging that at any level. Okay, that's the individual side of it. Um, we see this in advertising. I mean, man, marketers and advertisements, they pick up on this stuff like crazy. Uh, and TV shows too. How many of y'all are lost um, fans from a number of years ago? Smart people raise their hand because you're the only ones that understood it. Um, so Lost is this incredible, mind-blowing show. Uh, in, that, in that show is a character named John Locke. And John Locke has this famous line. He says, don't tell me what I can't do. It's just defiant. Like, you don't get to tell me how my life has limits on it. I can do whatever I want. Um, no rules, just right. That's what Outback Steakhouse says as they sell you a blooming onion. Uh, J.C. Penney, you know, the, the cultural warrior that they are, uh, their slogan is this, be a rebel, make your own rules, and, and buy a comforter. <laughs> I don't know how that fits in with J.C. Penney, but that's what they say. Um, Elsa, our, our homegirl from Frozen, says, no, wrong, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. Now I'm free. Let it go. Individualism means that we love freedom and we chafe against rules and restrictions on that freedom. What is the expressive part? How does that come in? So we value individuality and freedom and we deeply, deeply value expressing that. If you feel something or think something or believe something, by all means, do it, think it, feel it, act on it, whatever. Express it. And social media has only poured gas on this fire. Think about it. Um, you post your life on Facebook, not the like juicy details because you don't want your parents and grandparents seeing that, but you post your life on Facebook in generalities. You post your photos on Instagram. You post your ideas on Twitter. You write blogs. You upload videos. You put the funny things or like the kind of risque things on Snapchat. Like we do all these things as a means to, to tell others and tell our imaginary friends um, who we are, how we want to be seen, or what it is about us that, that drives us or dominates our life or that we're thinking about or whatever. We put ourselves out there. We love expressing ourselves. Another way we ex- uh, see expressive individualism, I'm just kind of trying to build the case that this is what's out there, okay, um, is through the phrase, follow your heart. Um, that phrase has saturated our culture 
in all kinds of ways. There are three movies named that, all of which have gotten under 35 on Rotten Tomatoes. But speaking of movies, let's see where this shows up in movies. Um, Follow Your Heart shows up in Care Bear movies, and it shows up in Ella Enchanted. It shows up in Captain America. He follows his heart. Napoleon Dynamite followed his heart about 10 years ago. Richard Gere followed his heart in Pretty Woman. Braveheart said, follow your heart in the 14th century in Scotland. Uh, Kevin Costner said to follow your heart in Field of Dreams. Um, Even in outer space, they're following their heart. Battlestar Galactica, they're doing it. Luke Skywalker followed his heart and blows up the Death Star. Matt Damon bought a zoo because he followed his star, his heart. Goodwill Hunting followed his heart. Bradley Cooper actually followed his heart in both Silver Linings Playbook and as an FBI agent in American Hustle. Follow your heart. Do whatever you want. Don't let anyone tell you what's wrong. If you feel it, you want it. If you think it will make you happy, you should do it. This is at the heart of the I world. Uh, This no-name named Steve Jobs capitalized on this a number of years ago, created this little thing called the iPod on into the iPhone, the iMac, and the iPad, and the i-everything. And he's made like $1,000 doing that. (laughs) He's gotten really rich. This is what I want you to see. In this I world, expressive individualism is a new way. And this is a this is a huge thing. In this culture of expressive individualism, this is a new way to understand what it means to be a human being. The, I'm going to call it the gospel message or the good news message of the I world is this. Personal fulfillment is found in your having the freedom to choose what you want to do and who you want to be. It's, it's thoroughly, I can, I can be who I want, I can do what I want, and no one can challenge that. That's why the, criti- the cardinal sin in our world is to actually criticize or, cha- or challenge someone else's thoughts about anything. And you all know that. The moment you stand opposed to someone on any number of things, you have all of a sudden become bigoted. You have become hateful, judgmental. You have become whatever thing they call you. And this is why, y'all, because the biblical narrative and the I world narrative, they are, make no mistake about it, they are clashing narratives. They cannot coexist and and live happily ever after. Because the message of the Bible is absolutely, make no mistake about it, you don't get to define who you are. God defines who you are. He created you. He says all kinds of things about you and about your life and about the way you're created to live and all of these things. And so our knee-jerk reaction is to write the Bible off and say it's outdated and old and musty and socially regressive and all this stuff, but is that right? Is that the best thing? Is that the right way to think about it? Let's look at it. The Bible talks about sex. Oh, oh, sorry. And and the reason that that sex is so big in this is that uh, one of the strongest desires that humans experience is the desire for sex. And so obviously if we live in a world that says do whatever you want, then sexuality absolutely fits into that and says, yeah, you can be and do uh, whatever you want sexually too. And any challenge to that (laughs) be and do, I realize y'all can laugh. Um, We're all seventh graders, right? Um, Sexuality is just, it fits right into that model, okay? So, here's what I want to suggest tonight, is that the Bible, the Bible's view of sex is actually not like this little small thing where, where people ought to look at Christianity in the Bible and say, oh, that's cute. 
That's cute how you guys think about sex and want to protect it. That's sweet. What I want to suggest is that the Bible's view of sex is this big and not this big. It's bigger than the cultural's view. The culture's view, let me show you. So, right there, sex is bigger than you think. Um, <clears throat> to say that means uh, that uh, we have to recognize that in this culture of expressive individualism, when it comes to sex, that, that sex has so flooded the market. It's so flooded our ideology and our feeds and, and commercials and I mean everything. And I'm not like this guy who's just like, oh, it's just why well, everything's wrong right now. But I'm just saying this is the reality. Sex is so pervasive in all aspects of every part of our life that it's basically become, eh. like, It's just not what it was meant to be. It, it's been devalued by its flooding the market. This happens in all other aspects. Think about it economically. Su- supply and demand curves. If there's more of something out there, it's cheaper. It's devalued. Think about it in the artistic world. You have an original print, and it's worth a lot of money. Then you have the copies or the prints, and they're not worth that much because there's more of them. Think about it in a dating relationship. If you like someone, that person just is texting you 8,000 times a day and is smothering you and won't leave you alone, that devalues them. They're not as attractive. They've flooded the market of your phone or of your life. I did that with Sarah when, when I was trying to like her. Um, and she did not like it, turns out. So... Um, this happens. This happens in our, in our lives. It happens with sex. As Christianity uh, <clears throat> was spreading in the early, in the second century and beyond, Christianity became countercultural in two primary ways. And here's what they were. On the one hand, Christians became known as this radical group because they gave away their possessions. They shared their goods and their money and their food and all kinds of stuff to people who were in need. So that was on one hand. The other hand, the way that Christianity became countercultural is that they were very conservative with their bodies. They didn't give their bodies away to just anyone. Listen how uh, Tertullian, who is a, um, a church histor- historian, a person in the second century, said this. One in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us, but our wives. Why did he have to say that? Because in Greco-Roman culture in the first, second century, people would share their spouses with each other. Okay? Another account from the second century epistle to Diognetus. The author went out of his way to declare that Christians are normal in regard to what they wear and what they eat and how they participate in society. However, he says this. Christians share their meals but not their sexual partners. Again, why would he have to say that? Because the culture was doing that. There was a very low and common view of sex and sexuality, and Christians from the very beginning have been known as people who say, yeah, yeah, I don't think we can do that. Because sex is more than that. So what is it? I'm going to suggest sex is three things. Sex is, the purpose of sex is threefold. First is this, it's certainly recreation. It's certainly recreation. The passage that we read in Genesis, y'all, Adam is so freaking excited about Eve, who God has created from him, that that little thing in there says, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It is a rap song. It's like poetry. He is freaking out singing about Eve. Okay, it's like a a naked dance. I don't know what's going on, but Adam is going crazy because he's had all these animals. He's like, that's not going to work, God. But Eve's here, he's like, game on. This is good. I like what I'm seeing here. Let's do this. 
Uh, the Bible goes on in 1 Timothy 4, and the Apostle Paul, he warns Timothy about people who, who would come in, and, and he calls them false prophets and, and uh, apostates, people who left the faith. And he said, you will know who they are, because the, they're going to start forbidding marriage, and they're going to start forbidding sex and marriage, and all the other things that God created to be received with thanksgiving, in which he declared are good. And you will know that they are not Christians, because they're going to come and tell you that, that marriage and sex isn't good. He said, so, so don't listen to them. That is not true. Marriage and sex is good. The Song of Solomon, it is a book in the Bible, which if, uh, if you read it in English, you're going to be like, okay, this seems kind of sexy, uh, but I don't understand it all. If you were to read it in Hebrew, you would like turn just staunchly pink. It would be so embarrassing. You wouldn't read it in front of anyone else. But you'd have to understand Hebrew. That's why, understanding Hebrew, I get to read it to Sarah, and it's amazing. I'm just kidding. I don't. No one would ever do that. But it is, like, over-the-top explicit about the beauty and the fun and all of this that is supposed to be in sex. God created sex. He created it to be wonderful. Y'all, did you know there is no other reason for the nerve endings in the tip of the penis and all the different places in a woman's vagina than simply for pleasure? That's it. That is a biological fact. There is no other meaning to that other than it's supposed to feel good. God created you. He wanted it to feel good. Sex is supposed to be fun. The Bible says, yay, for tons of sex and marriage. But that's not all. There's more to it. It's bigger than that. What else is it for? Procreation, making babies. Now, some traditions within uh, Christianity have, have elevated this and said, this is the main point of sex is to have babies. And a big part of uh, Christendom for a long time said this. And so um, it's kind of a leave-it-to-beaver mindset, like a business transaction. We go into the bedroom, we come out with a baby nine months later. Um, Now, look, procreation is super important. Having babies is very important in the Christian worldview, and here's why. You have to understand that kind of the overarching big picture of the Bible, and so I'm going to do it in like 30 seconds. That God created the world, he created humans in the world and said, go and fill this world, populate it, take dominion over it, subdue it, make it beautiful, uh, advance the technology of it. All of these things that are encapsulated in Genesis 1 and 2. But he says, go and fill it and spread my beauty and my glory and my kingdom, spread it over the whole earth. And so from the very beginning, people who are trying to live biblically have said that having babies is part of God's design for sex. It's not the whole thing. It may not even be the main thing, but it is definitely a thing. It is definitely one of the purposes. And so this is why Christians throughout the centuries and throughout the millennia have said, we have to, we have to, if we're able, we have to participate in this mission, in this filling the world so that God's glory might shine and go forth. Look, I'm going to say something that I hope you hear it the right way. Muslims get this. Muslims get that they are living for a king and a kingdom. And they get that the easiest and the fastest way for that kingdom to grow is through having babies. Okay? Now, I'm thoroughly against their rationale for that. They're doing it because they fear Allah's judgment and his retribution against them. I think there's a much better motivator than that. But they understand that kingdoms grow and spread by having children, and then you teach the children the faith. 
That's a Christian idea. This is a Christian idea that Islam has picked up on. And if you are a Christian, or if you're considering Christianity, you're wondering what this is all about, you should hear that as a rebuke to you as a Western Christian who most likely, I'm not, I can't say fully, sees having children as some sort of, um, <clears throat> as some sort of burden. Right? And we think that the reason we have kids is that's what we do after we get married out of college and after we finish traveling and um, stop being selfish that way. We, get some, we have some kids so that they can be cute and make us happy. Like that's kind of how we think about kids. And the Bible says, gosh, it's so much bigger than that. The sex is for that, but it's even bigger than that. So it's recreation, procreation, and finally communication. So the Bible's view of sex is not only just kind of liberal and progressive saying it's so fun, nor is it just conservative saying have babies. It's something altogether bigger and better than that. In the Bible, it says that sex is saying something. The act of sex and engaging in sexual expression, it communicates something about you to the world or to someone that you're with. God, Hear this. God did not create sex as a way to show affection. He did not create sex as a way to show affection. He created sex as a way to seal a commitment. As a way to seal a commitment. Sex is a uniting act. Uh, Tim Keller, again, has a great book on marriage. And in this, he says that sex is a way of cementing and enabling relationships of complete oneness. It's God's appointed way to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you. Marriage is a covenant, and sex in marriage is a covenant renewal ceremony in which you are saying to the other person, I am completely yours. That in the taking off of my clothes, in the standing or laying before you, everything that I have belongs to you. And therefore, and we're going to talk about this a lot next week, therefore, to engage in that kind of sexual expression or any kind of sexual expression outside of the the context of a marriage covenant where you have promised that you actually are the other person's, to engage in this act that says, I'm completely yours, in a place where you have not actually given yourself completely to them is a lie. Engaging in sexuality and sexual expression outside of marriage is fundamentally a lie. More on that next week. 1 Corinthians 7.5, God goes so far as to tell married couples that they can't just decide, even if both of them decide, they can't just decide that they're going to stop having sex. God says, you have to come back and have, and have sex together. Sure, take time for prayer or to work through issues or whatever that is. But you can't stop because sex is in itself seals the relationship. It's the, it's the cement that holds it together. So God commands that, that people who are married continue to have sex. In the Genesis passage, when God says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh... What he's saying right there when he says hold fast, it's a, the Hebrew word is literally like to be soldered to. That there is this bond, of this real bond that happens there between two people in this act. And if that's good and that's the intention and that's the way it's supposed to be. And those people become one flesh. There's this new family unit and there's this bond that's being created that's so strong 
that it actually enables them to leave their existing strong familial unit, the strongest bond that people have known to that time. It allows them to leave and to start this new family unit because that bond is so strong between a man and a woman. So yes, sex is big. But if sex is this big, I hope, or because sex is this big, I hope that you begin to see why Christians, again, for millennia, not just your youth group, not just me at RUF, but for since its inception, since Jesus came, Christians have always said sex is a big deal. It, it's like gunpowder. That when, when put together rightly in a firework or something like that, it can be amazing and beautiful and powerful. But if used wrongly, it will be powerful unto destruction. So sex is big. It's big. Christians have always taken sexual sin and sexual issues more seriously than the surrounding culture. But lastly tonight, we have to see that sex is smaller than you think it is too. It's smaller than you think it is. As I mentioned in the first point, in a culture that breathes expressive individualism and with sexual expression at the peak of that expression... The culture says sex is everything. It's where I get my identity and my fulfillment and my life. It's where I go when I need a shot in the arm. I go and, and masturbate or I go and find someone who can make me feel good in that way. The sexual expression is at the peak of that. And now the interesting thing about that is that it's not just the kind of the, the, the progressive side of culture that says that sex is everything. There has actually been a very conservative side of even Christianity that has said sex is everything. And it goes like this. There was a, uh, there's a documentary that's coming out or has recently come out. And the name of the documentary is uh, Give Me Sex, Jesus. And in the documentary, the, uh, the, film, the filmmakers and the producers, they interview a bunch of people uh, who grew up in probably fine churches, biblically uh, faithful churches. And they heard this overarching message that sounded like this, that the way sex was spoken about in youth group or by their parents or wherever wasn't so much that sex was a good gift by God to be enjoyed in marriage and to be seen rightly like that, but it sounded like this. Sex was like this unlocking of the secret powers of the universe. And that once you had it, like you began to see everything in 3D and the world finally makes sense. And it's just, just, it's this amazing thing. And so half the people on the documentary are saying, so they told us that and expected us not to have sex? (laughs) Like they made sex to be like the, the closet in Narnia, where just like the other side of the world is right through there. Or at, at platform nine and three quarters, where you go up there and you disappear to a whole different world. It's amazing, but you can't do that. There was this view that sex is everything. That it, unless you're having it in marriage one day, then, then you'll never kind of experience the world in that way. And this is encapsulated so well by one guy in the documentary who says this. Jesus, please don't come back before I have sex. Here's what he's saying. Yeah, Jesus, I know that heaven's going to be fine. I'm sure it'll be good. But please don't come back before I get to have sex. Like That's going to be the most good. That's going to be the most important thing. Don't come back until I get to do that. Y'all, this is upside down. And so in response to both of these things, that sex is uh, both too small and so Christians say it's big, but also that sex is too big and so Christians say it's small, the good news of the Bible says this, that being made in God's image, 
that being made in God's image means that there is something so much bigger that defines you than your sexual practices or your sexual attractions. That being made in the image of God means that you don't have to be defined by what you've done, by what you are doing, by what kind of attractions you've had, by what kind of uh, confusion you have on this issue. That does not define you in through the lens of the Bible. Staking your identity in sexuality or pinning your hopes for happiness on sex is simply too low of, a, of an ideal, of a goal for a human being made in God's image. So think about this. When Jesus comes to earth, He comes to redeem and to restore and to repair all things that are broken. All things that are broken. And when He does that, He doesn't just come and say, No, sex is no big deal. But likewise, He doesn't come and say, No, sex is everything, and unless you have sex, you're missing out. He comes and says, Hey, let me define you. Let me give you a reason for living. Let me separate you from your sexual baggage and give you hope that you can actually be different. Let me tell you that your sexual attractions aren't the most defining thing about you. That when Jesus comes and when when someone comes to Jesus, He says, that becomes the most important thing about you. That who you are in Christ is the most important thing about your life. Now, what do we do with that? Well, that means that whether you are heterosexual, whether you would consider yourself homosexual, whether you are married, whether you are single, whether you are sexually prude or sexually promiscuous to date, Jesus is saying none of those things are the most important thing about you. That when when people come to Jesus, everybody brings their sexuality to Him and says... Here it is, Jesus. I give it to you. I give my baggage to you. I give my attractions to you. I give my desires to you. I give my addictions to you. I give my present relationship to you. What do you want from me? You are the good king who has laid down your life for me. You get all of me. Friends, the the connection that all of us so long for face-to-face with with someone in sexual and sexual expression, that connection that we long for will only ultimately be found when you meet Jesus face to face. Don't you get this? That the Bible is saying sex is not the point. That sex itself is just a sign point, a signpost pointing forward to the point. And the point is this, and it's made explicitly clear in Ephesians 5 when, Jesus, when Paul starts talking about how the relationship between a husband and a wife is actually talking about the relationship between Jesus and His bride, the church. And so what that means for all of us in here is that whether or not you were ever sexually active or whether you've been very sexually active, whether or not you ever get married or whether or not you stay single, whether or not you have heterosexual attraction or experience same-sex attraction, whether or not any of those things are true, Jesus asks you to come to Him and say, let me be the most important thing about you. And one day in glory, you are going to experience the biggest pleasure that that the world has ever known. That the, the earthly orgasms that we so long for will pale in comparison to the pleasure of that day. 
Friends, the view of sex from the Bible is so big, it's so glorious, that it's saying, this is simply not the most important thing about you. Jesus is. And what he offers you is a restored beauty, a restored dignity. Let me explain it this way, and I'll, and I'll finish with this illustration. A number of years ago on the uh, show Antiques Roadshow, uh, there was a, an older woman who came on the show, and what she presented and what they put on the pedestal right there was the most valuable thing that had ever been brought to the show. It was a sculpture from the Ming Dynasty. And the host of the show, you know, puts it on there in this thing, and it's rotating, and he's walking around it with tears in his eyes, and he's looking at it from every corner, just appreciating the beauty of this. And the woman says, I don't really know what it is. It's been in my garage, and so it was filthy and nasty and all this stuff. You know, I cleaned it up for the show. But he said, you have no idea. It's priceless. We don't even know how to assign value to this, essentially. When God looks at you, He doesn't look at your sexuality because that's not who you are. He looks at you as someone created in His image and He says, oh, She's so beautiful. He's so valuable. And so... And because they're so valuable, I want them back. That I lost them in the fall, but I'm going to get them back. And friends, we see how valuable we are to God, but when we see what it took to redeem us, He had to send Jesus. He had to send His own Son, the thing that was most valuable to Him, so that He might get you back. And when you believe that, when you see that that's what God has done for you in Christ, and when, when Jesus' value begins to define you, then you have the Father's view of you rightly. He says, you are of infinite value, and I love you, I cherish you, I have bought you back, you are mine. Let me show you how to live in every way of your life, in every area of your life. And friends, when you realize that that's who God is and that's what He's done for you, it makes it easier to say, I'm not saying it makes it easy, I'm not saying that. It makes it easier to say, God, if you're that good, if you think I'm that precious and that special, that's just better than anything else I'm getting here on earth. I will give you my life. I'll give you my sexuality. Do with it as you wish. You are the good Father who loves me as His child. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that You would Convince us of the deep and beautiful truth of your gospel. But Lord, our sexuality doesn't have to define us, however good we think we've been or however bad we fear we've been. Lord, we all come to you by grace. We all come to you needy and begging you to change us, and to deliver us and redefine us. So would you do that now, even, even now? By the power of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.